Good to see each and every one of you today. <clears throat> Hope things are going well in your lives. Today we'd like to consider the beautiful song of the bow, like bow and arrows. What it is, is a eulogy, a beautiful eulogy by David for his dear friend, Jonathan, son of King Saul, but also for King Saul himself. And it's really amazing what David has to say about Saul. King Saul had persecuted David. It began early on. You know the story, of course, of David and Goliath, how with God's help and power, David was able to kill the ferocious giant in this war. The ladies recognized what David had done in song. They sang about David killing his tens of thousands and Saul, King Saul, his thousands. Yes, David... God had used in a mighty way. King Saul, though, didn't like that song. They've ascribed to David tens of thousands and me only thousands. You see, he was envious. He didn't like that. In fact, even though David at times played for King Saul on his harp, to help soothe him, he had very dark moods at times. King Saul was so envious and so upset with David that one day he took a javelin and he threw it at David, attempting to kill him. But he missed, and David got away. But he could see how the land lay. He could see how King Saul did not like him considered him an opponent, someone in competition. And of course, David had secretly been anointed king by Samuel earlier. David did not broadcast this, and Saul was still acting king. Saul, though, had been rejected by God you can read about that in 1 Samuel chapter 15. And it began back in chapter 13 of 1 Samuel. So putting those two chapters together, especially chapter 15, you see that even though Saul was still the acting king, God had anointed David to replace him. But the interesting thing along the way is how Jonathan helped David escape and a band of people gathered to David, several hundred men, and Saul was so envious and so wanting to make sure that David would not take his place as king that he gathered his army together and pursued after David to kill him. In chapter 24 of 1 Samuel, we find that Saul was camped with his army 
And at nighttime, David and one of the soldiers sneaked down and got where Saul was asleep. Would he kill him? No, David would not put forth his hand against the Lord's anointed. You see, he had respect for Saul's position. He realized that God had put him there. He respected authority, even though he himself had been anointed king. He would not harm him. And that's a good example because I think we live in a day and age today where people often do not respect authority. But he was to be respected even though he did a lot of bad things. On another occasion, Saul went into a cave to relieve himself. He didn't know that David and his people were in that cave. It must have been a big cave. David got close to him and he could have killed him. On the other hand, he just cut a little bit off of Saul's robe surreptitiously. And Saul finished and he went outside and when he was some distance away, then David came out and made himself known and yelled out to Saul, pointing out here he could have killed him, but he didn't. And that seemed to get through a little bit more this time to King Saul, that in reality David was not an enemy. But Saul continued in his evil ways, and at one point, Chapter 28 of 1 Samuel, he consulted a spiritualist medium, a necromancer, which was prohibited because we're supposed to seek God, not the dead. And that was one of the great sins that he committed, as we see in 1 Chronicles. And so the day came where there was a great battle. The Philistines had their army, King Saul, along with his son Jonathan and another son or two, had their army, and so there was a huge fight. But Saul lost the battle. Saul died. And sadly, even Jonathan, his son, a man of faith, a man who was not envious and who demanded that he be the king, but who supported David. He also was killed. And so with this then as a background, we come to this beautiful eulogy, or elegy as it might be called, the Song of the Bow. Let's look at it. Second Samuel Chapter 1, beginning in verse 17. And David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and over Jonathan, his son. Now, as I read this, notice how devoid, how lacking of any animosity toward Saul, who had tried to kill him and who kept trying to kill him who was envious of him. 
Notice the total absence of anything like that. In fact, he doesn't say anything bad about Saul. He only says good things about him. How could he do such a thing? It helps us realize what a marvelous eulogy this truly is. So listen and bear that in mind. Also, he bade them teach the children of Judah the use of the bow. Behold, it is written in the book of Jasher. Here it is. The beauty of Israel is slain upon your high places. How the strong are fallen. Don't tell it in Gath, which is a part of uh, Philistine country along with Ashkelon. Do not publicize it in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised triumph. You mountains of Gilboa, that's where they had the battle, let there be no dew, neither let there be rain upon you, nor fields of offerings, for there the shield of the strong is vilely thrown away, the shield of Saul, as though he had not been anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the strong, the bow, the bow of Jonathan did not turn back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan were lovely and pleasant in their lives. Imagine him saying that about Saul. They were pleasant in their lives. And in their death, they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. You daughters of Israel, do not weep over Saul, who clothed you in scarlet and with other delights, who put on ornaments of gold on your clothing. How the strong have fallen in the midst of the battle. O oh, Jonathan, you were slain in your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother, Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was wonderful, passing the love of women. How the mighty are fallen and the weapons of war perished. And by the way, speaking of the brotherly love between Jonathan and David. It is not a homosexual kind of relationship here. That was strictly forbidden. David was a man after God's heart. This was a brotherly kind of deep love between these two kindred spirits. One of the things we need to notice about this all is David's amazing forgiveness. We read there, beginning in verse 23, that Saul and Jonathan were lovely, pleasant in their lives. In the death, they weren't divided. Weep over Saul, verse 24. Look what he did for you, and so on. So one of the things that comes to us as we read this elegy and these words is David forgave Saul. Now, forgiveness is sometimes a very hard thing to do. 
But imagine, too, what Saul had done. How he'd thrown a javelin at him, how he'd chased him like prey, like an animal. How he tried to kill him. And yet, he has nothing bad to say about him. And he refers to him as the Lord's anointed one. What great forgiveness this is. Maybe this is a good lesson, a good example of eulogies. Now, I've been at a funeral or two where some negative things were said about the person who'd passed away that I thought would have been better left unsaid. <laughs> Taking this as a good example. And so David was a great example of forgiveness as well as respect of authority. Who else is a great example of forgiveness in the Bible? Well, you might say Jesus was, and that's absolutely true. He said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. But also another great example earlier was a man named Joseph. Joseph was one of the 12 children of Israel. He had two sons. But Joseph was the 11th child of Israel, also called Jacob. And later he had another younger brother born named Benjamin. But the other brothers were very envious of Joseph. And he'd had some dreams and he told them what the dreams were. And they came out very poorly in the dreams and they hated him. And so one day, Jacob, Israel, the father, sent him to look for the other sons who were herding sheep way off. Well, he found them, and as he was coming toward them, they saw him. And their hatred was very strong. And they spoke of him as this dreamer's coming. They decided they'd kill him. Well, you can read about the details turned out they didn't end up killing him, but they did throw him into a cistern, a, a pit, where water would collect. And he couldn't get out of it. And while his life was still kind of hanging in the balance, some merchant people were passing by a caravan. They came up with the idea, and actually the one who suggested it was trying to save Joseph's life, he didn't want to kill him, that they sell him as a slave. Well, they agreed, and so they sold Joseph as a slave. Now, these people, this caravan was going down into Egypt. So he was a slave, and he was sold there as a slave. An important official named Potiphar bought him. And so he was Potiphar's slave. And God blessed the house of Potiphar very much because of Joseph. And Joseph was elevated in position before Potiphar as pretty well in charge of everything. But Potiphar had a wife, and she cast her eyes upon young 
handsome, strong Joseph, and she propositioned him, but he would not give in to her seduction. And she kept after him, and he kept refusing her. It wasn't right. And one day he was alone in the house and no other people around, and she really was bringing it to a head, insisting that he go to bed with her. But he said, how can I sin against God and do something like that? He totally rejected that offer. Well, she was offended. And so then she'd gotten one of his clothes and she went to the rest and basically was screaming that he, Joseph tried to rape her, which was a huge lie. When Potiphar came home, that's what he was told. I think he may have kind of suspected something. You'd have thought he would have put Joseph to death. But instead, he just turned him over to the jailer. Maybe he knew his wife, the kind of person she really was. At any rate, God's overruling hand was there, and Joseph was put in prison. He had been hurt with, like, shackles earlier and again, apparently. And here he was in prison. He'd only done good in his father's house, and he got persecuted. He'd only done good in Potiphar's house, and he got persecuted. He ends up in jail. Now, he could wonder, what in the world is this all about? <laughs> but his faith did not falter. He believed in God regardless of the circumstances. What a great example that is for us. Well, some years went by. And a couple of pharaohs, the king of Egypt, a couple of his people that waited on him, a butler and a baker, they'd somehow done some things the king didn't like, and so Pharaoh put them in jail too. And one day they both had a dream. And in this dream, it looked like one of them was released and one went back to Pharaoh and took up his duties and the other ones didn't quite know what happened to him, but it didn't look so good. But they went to Joseph, they'd heard he could interpret dreams. And he basically said, it's God who interprets, but here's what the dreams mean. Well, one of them would be restored back to Pharaoh, the butler, and he would give drink into Pharaoh's hand. The other one, after three days, would be executed. <laughs> so that was terrible news for that one, the baker, but great news for the butler. And so just like Joseph had prophesied, after three days, the one was restored, the other was executed. But Joseph had told the butler, when you're restored, tell Pharaoh about me. I didn't do anything wrong. I shouldn't be here in this jail. But like human nature is, once he got released, he went back to Pharaoh. He was okay, forgot all about Joseph. But after the passage of time, 
Pharaoh had a dream. In fact, he had two dreams. And the interpretation of the dreams was hidden from him. Then the butler thought about Joseph. Hey, he can interpret dreams. He interpreted the dreams of myself and the baker. And it happened, like he said. So he told Pharaoh about that. So Pharaoh sent word to the prison to bring Joseph to him so he could interpret his dreams that he didn't understand. So Joseph got all cleaned up and made nice and handsome to go to Pharaoh. So Pharaoh told him his dreams. Joseph interpreted the dreams correctly. It really was one interpretation for both of them. And as he interpreted, so it happened. He said there would be seven years of famine. Then there would be seven years of plenty. Great opposite. I got those mixed up. First the plenty, then the famine, as you know. So the seven years of plenty happened. They had great bumper crops. But Joseph advised that they save up the grain from these good crops so they'd have it when the seven years of famine and drought came. Now when Pharaoh heard the recommendation and interpretation of Joseph, he appointed him to be in charge. <laughs> in fact, he made him second in command of the whole country. He was like the strong prime minister in charge. And that is what happened. Seven years of plenty, great crops. Joseph had him save it up. And then seven years of famine. Terrible situation. And the people came and they bought from Pharaoh of the grain that had been saved. But in it all, Joseph forgave his brothers. <laughs> in fact, later, when he had power over them because of the famine, they came to get some food. He could have had them all executed, <laughs> but he didn't. And finally, he revealed himself to them, who he really was. You see, he had pretended he couldn't understand their talking of their language. But of course he did. At any rate, he's a great, wonderful example of forgiveness to his brothers. They were afraid he was going to take vengeance, but could hardly believe that he wouldn't. And even after their father died, they still wanted to be sure that he wasn't going to harm them. Well, no, he wasn't going to harm them. He'd forgiven them. And he also saw God's overruling hand and the things that had happened. Okay, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32, it tells us we should forgive one another like Christ has forgiven us. Later, when we have the communion, we'll be thinking, will we not, of his great sacrifice and his forgiveness and as well as his forgiving the soldiers who were crucifying him. As David overlooked 
the oppression of Saul, as Joseph overlooked what his brothers had done to him, so God overlooks our sin, the things wrong that we have done. Years ago, we had some people in our church up in Placerville. Bill and Jean were their names. They had three children. One of them was a lovely young lady who had gone away to college. I think it was in Illinois. And one day she had opened up the business for she worked as well. And a man came in, got her in the back room and murdered her. Horrible thing. But the parents wrote a letter to be published that was a letter of forgiveness. Now the rubber really hit the road in something horrible like that. But they refused to allow their anger. Instead, it was replaced by love, as it were appealing to the murderer to get right. God, in his love, extends to us his forgiveness. We don't deserve it, but he offers it to us by trusting Jesus. John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes or trusts in him should not perish, should not go to hell, but have everlasting life. Love conquers hate and unforgiveness. And like David and like Jesus and like Joseph, we too are to forgive people, even people who do us real damage. Here in Samuel, we find in verse 26, 2 Samuel chapter 1, I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was wonderful, passing the love of women. Love conquers hate. Love brings forgiveness. Go with me, if you would, to 1 Peter chapter 4. In verse 8, Christians are admonished. Above all things, have fervent love among yourselves, because love shall cover the multitude of sins. David had love. Joseph had love. Jesus had love. And if we have God's love, guess what? We're going to forgive. We're going to help. We'll leave vengeance in God's hands. Forgiveness is a bit like a covering. 
Love shall cover the multitude of sins. Go with me to the passage where it talks about a wedding garment. Matthew chapter 22. Instead of verse 17, let's go back to the beginning here. Matthew 22, beginning in verse 1. It's leading up to the wedding garment story. Jesus answered and he spoke to them again by parables and he said, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is like to a certain king who made a marriage for his son. And he sent out his servants to call them who were invited to the wedding and they wouldn't come. Again, he sent out other servants saying, tell them who are invited, look, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fatlings are killed and all things are ready. Come to the marriage. But they made light of it and they went on their ways. One to his farm, another to his business. And the remnant took his servants and they entreated them spitefully, and they killed him. When the king heard about it, he was angry. He sent out his armies, and he destroyed those murderers, and he burned up their city. Then he says to his servants, The wedding is ready, but they who were invited were not worthy. Therefore you go into the highways, and as many as you shall find invite to the wedding. So those servants went out into the highways and they gathered together all as many as they found, both bad and good. And the gospel goes out to everybody, doesn't it? And the wedding was furnished with guests. When the king, king came in to see the guests, he saw there a man who did not have on a wedding garment. Evidently, the king had provided very special wedding clothes for all the guests. Everyone was to have one. Perhaps they were bright, shining kind of robes to celebrate the wedding. So they all were to get a wedding garment. But, and when the king came in to see the guests, he saw there a man who did not have on a wedding garment. And he says to him, friend, how did you come in here not having on a wedding garment? And he didn't have anything to say. He was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot and take him away. Throw him into the outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. What a beautiful picture, this wedding garment all, as it were, dressed in beautiful, clean, maybe white clothes to celebrate the wedding. And so they were covered. They were made beautiful. Now, if you go with me over to the last verse of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, which is verse 21, we see that that's what Jesus does for us. 
For he has made him, that is Christ, to be sin or sin offering for us, who knew no sin. Jesus was sinless. He qualified. And he became the Lamb of God. He took the punishment which we deserve. He knew no sin, but he became sin for us. Why? So that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So God gives us the covering. God forgives our sins. He gives us the wedding garment. He sees us as being acceptable when we put our trust in the Lord Jesus. God saw the Israelites without sin. Numbers 23, 21. Even though they were very sinful, he saw them as having the wedding garment on. In Jeremiah 23, verse 6, it speaks of Jehovah or God, Sidkinu, which means God our righteousness. God our righteousness. So even there in the Old Testament, we see a picture of God's forgiveness and God's giving us his righteousness. He exchanges our sin for his righteousness. He puts it upon us. He's the wedding garment. So we learn forgiveness. We learn love. And another thing we learn is not to envy. King Saul was a bad example there. He envied. The leaders were a bad example. For envy, they'd turn Jesus over, Matthew 27. On the other hand, David was a picture, an example of not envying, not like Saul. He did not envy or covet the position even though he had been anointed king. There's some Bible statements you can see there about envy. One of them in Proverbs talks about envy wrecking, as it were, our hearts. A sound heart is the life of the flesh, but envy the rottenness of the bones. So sometimes sin takes its toll on us even physically. Not only is it a harmful thing toward others, but it takes its toll on us as well. And so there are a bunch of verses there at the end of your sheet that I'd encourage you to read at home concerning envy or jealousy. I'd like to close with a legend. A legend of a potter. Deals with this matter of envy. We have some Burmese people that meet here in church, and this talks about a Burmese legend. It says there is a legend of a Burmese potter who became envious of the prosperity of a washerman, a launderman, and induced the king to order him to wash a black elephant white. 
that the king might become lord of the white elephant. You see, he wanted to destroy his, <laughs> that person. The washerman replied that he had no vessel large enough, whereupon the king ordered the potter to make the vessel. But the first step of the elephant crushed every vessel made, and the potter was ruined by the scheme by which he sought to ruin the washerman. And then it says, envy always punishes itself. <laughs> That's kind of a, a cute thing. But yes, envy does take its toll on us. Love conquers all. Love forgives. Love does not harbor jealousy. And love does many other wonderful things. Wouldn't you say, in the light of all these things, that it was a wonderful, beautiful song of eulogy for Saul and for Jonathan? May we have like attitudes in love and faith in our lives.